From the EPR Creations Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you Unconquered with Doc Staples. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by EPR Creations, by Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, by Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and by my newest advertising partner, Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage. As always, information's in the show notes. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast with Doc Staples. Well, 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 how the turntables. We are here for a not exactly hot takes discussion about Florida State's uh, lawsuit against the ACC, pushing for a court to issue a declarative judgment that the ACC grant of rights is uh, unenforceable and is uh, inapplicable. But we're here. We're going to give our takes, regardless of how hot or cold, and uh, talk about this. I'm going to try to get uh, someone who practices this sort of law on here uh, for more detailed discussion at some point in the future. Uh, but for the interim, no, I am not a, an attorney. Uh, nor have I played one on television, but I have stayed at a Holiday Inn Express before, and uh, I can play one for a little bit here on this episode. So we're going to talk through some of these things on the uh, on, on Florida State's uh, particular claims here and what the ACC is likely to uh, work from in their response. Actually, not exactly a response, since the ACC technically filed their case a day earlier in what was clearly a play for venue trying to get the uh, this case litigated in North Carolina business court as opposed to a Florida state court, which would obviously benefit Florida state to have things uh, litigated in, in that venue. So that that's something that they'll have to settle right away is, is basically which, uh, which venue has uh, which venue this should be litigated in. Having looked at the the cases, I do think the ACC's initial case is pretty weak there, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that get thrown out and and things to actually go to the state of Florida. I think the way that Florida State actually uh, specifically worded and is working towards certain arguments, uh, they, they're going to have a pretty strong case that it needs to be tried in Florida since this is involving a sovereign Florida uh, institution, and that if you are going to sue the state of uh, a state institution in this, uh, in Florida, then you're going to have to do it in a in a state of Florida court. Obviously, if you have specific documents that require that something like in the Big Twelve grant of rights, uh, any disputes have to be tried specifically. That's laid out that it specifically has to be done in Delaware by Delaware law, which is pretty common. The ACC grant of rights does not have that. Uh, it does not state where these sorts of things, the venue where these sorts of things may be litigated. And since, uh, as Florida State's filing points out, the ACC is technically based wherever it has membership. So uh, a state of Florida court actually applies to the ACC. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of venue. I do think that will matter at some point, but... Uh, I want to talk more about the merits of the case and, and in terms of what these uh, these arguments amount to, because there was a lot in FSU's filing. And frankly, Florida State found more and came out of and came out of this filing. I mean, having having read through the filing pretty detail uh, with with some detail, uh, FSU has a stronger case than I thought they would going in. And, you know, it. it it wasn't clear to me that they would have a a legitimate out that would be more than basically just throwing stuff out there in the hopes that it might stick. They they've got some legitimate uh, places where they've called attention to some discrepancies and some things that legally may hold some water in ways that that give them more leverage than I thought they'd have. Now I want to preface this by saying that. Ultimately, these sorts of uh, these sorts of cases almost always get settled. I mean, you go back to the Maryland case. Maryland contested the whole thing and then eventually settled for like sixty percent. 
of the uh, of the exit fee. These things very, very rarely go down to an actual judgment by the court. It almost always is a prelude to basically bringing the two parties to the table, establishing who has what leverage, and then finding a number that both sides can can agree on. That's that's pretty much that's almost always the case in these. Now, that said, FSU's case in this one is, in my reading, strong enough that we may see this go a little further than than normal. Uh, it's going to be really interesting because nobody has challenged a grant of rights like this before, which is a big reason that no one had done it. It's, it's one of those things uh, that, and actually, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and start reading from uh, from this, there's a there's a point in an article uh, that was published back in the Harvard Journal of Sports and Entertainment Law back in 2017, uh, and I'll post a link to it in the show notes. It's a really interesting piece uh, and really foundational in a lot of ways to this case. A lot of the arguments that Florida State makes in its case are almost cut and pasted from this particular Harvard Journal of Sports and Entertainment Law piece, and Actually, that arg- that piece argues that grant of rights uh, arrangements like what you had in the Big 12 and in the ACC may well be unenforceable legally. It, it's it's the, um, a major part of the argument in this uh, in this article that he's basically saying these are not as ironclad as they seem and that they may actually wind up if it's actually taken to court, it may wind up being unenforceable. And he gives a bunch of reasons why. But one of the things that he he does say is that even though a grant of rights like this may actually not be enforceable if taken to court and if litigated out, the vagueness of them and the uncertainty about what the result would be of such litigation strongly disincentivizes fighting against a grant of rights. And he argues that essentially, yeah, these may not be enforceable, but as long as nobody challenges them, they might as well be enforceable. They, they, they should be treated as enforceable because they're only unenforceable. Here's his wording. Uh, they are only as unenforceable as it is challenged. And he says the, the, the tricky bit here is no one knows exactly what's going to happen with such vague contractual language. So ultimately, it becomes what he labels, he's quoting someone else, a triple dog dare to actually challenge this sort of thing. And he says, you know, the the real question is, there's a cost benefit analysis that goes into whether or not it's worth challenging a grant of rights when you really don't have any certainty about how that's actually going to be litigated, how that's actually going to be decided in the if it does go to court and you know, he says uh, it's due to its lack of terms, the overwhelming litigation expense an uncertain outcome and almost no monetary gain that these uh, grants of rights are so unlikely to, to be fought. Well, Florida state got to a place where because of all of the other factors in play, the cost benefit analysis got to the place where it was there there was less cost to fighting it and potentially winning or at least reducing significantly the burden than there was to staying staying put on the basis of potential significant cost and of course in terms of a declarative judgment there's less actual cost involved here for Florida state if, if they happen to lose this case, you know, if if it was a worst case scenario and Florida State was told at the end of this case by the by the court, if if both parties fought this to the end and Florida State was told, no, no, the, the grant of rights holds and the ACC holds your media rights uh, until 2036. Well, Florida State at that point just stays in the ACC and doesn't pay an exit f- exit fee or a grant of rights. It's no good, but it's no worse than it would be if Florida State just stayed put other than the amount that they would have paid for the legal fees, which is not insignificant, but it's a whole lot less than the potential upside 
of a court ruling, no, you don't have to pay the grant of rights. No, no, that, that your your rights, you you now hold those again because of some invalidity uh, determined about the this grant of rights, and now you uh, now you can go with you know this reduced cost. That's a pretty significant deal, and all of a sudden, Florida State's in a great position. So they determined in terms of cost benefit that it was much better to go ahead and push for a declarative judgment, which minimizes the the risk on their part because they're not actually declaring that they're leaving. The declaration that they're leaving is only essentially retroactive if they win it, if they win the case. So then they can they can potentially find their way out of the out of the grant of rights and then put themselves in a position where they're a free agent. And then the Big Ten will want them. And then the SEC and ESPN are going to have some very hard decisions to make on whether or not they really want Fox and the Big Ten to have a property like Florida State. And I, I, I think that's the other thing here is previously Florida State, I think the decision makers were wanting assurances sort of behind the scenes, of course, from SEC decision makers that they would have a spot in the SEC if this all went went down. But the SEC and ESPN would prefer that not to be the case. So essentially, there's been a no, 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 this is not going to happen. No, no matter what, you are not going to have an invitation. It's easy to say on the front end. It's not so clear that that would actually be the decision with Florida State on the open market because of the value of the of the brand and the value of the property. At that point, eh, you know, maybe you see maybe you see some other decisions happening. But if the SEC does not invite Florida State, you can bet your britches that 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 uh, that the Big Ten will. So Florida State knows it's in that position. If they're able to get out now, it's just a matter of determining whether or not they're going to be able to get out. And again, this uh, this article so I think it's it's worth talking through this article first before I get to the actual case that Florida State makes here. Uh, this is an article by Mark Wilhelm, and again, I'm going to go ahead and put that uh, put a link to it. it it's available open access. Uh, going to put a link to it in the show notes. And for those of you really interested in this, uh, it goes through basically the nature of grant of rights and all of that. Then from page 106 on. Uh, essentially makes the case that these may well be irrevocable in terms of the wording of the contract and all of that, but they're actually unenforceable legally. That's essentially the case that he made makes. And he puts forward several different arguments about this. So first of all, he highlights uh, some ambiguity with respect to the matter of consideration when it comes to a grant of rights. Now, consideration is a basic albeit sometimes complex uh, legal concept that has to do with contract law. So essentially, if I sign a contract, the consideration has to do with what is with whatever value is owed as a part of that contract from one side to the other. So if I buy a car and I pay money and, and that contract talks about, okay, one person, one party is paying money, the other party gets the car. Well, for one party, the consideration is the car. The other party consideration is is the money. Uh, and then this is oversimplifying a bit. But the complexity here with something like a grant of rights, and this gets more complex if you if the grant of rights is signed after a uh, media contract has already been negotiated and signed out by the entity by by say the conference, is that the there there can be essentially uh, a contesting of the consideration of the contract that essentially this forced us to sign to sign over our rights for something that actually gives us no value in return. So if you think about it, he, he says um, uh, at the conclusion of his section on this, the only real consideration offered in the agreement is the telecast rights agreement, but that simply does not suffice as consideration for the assignment. It is not new consideration. It is value already owed. And that's because, again, the uh, the conference had already made the telecast rights agreement. Therefore, a distinction may be made that suggests the consideration is contingent on the grant of rights 
But as is discussed next, he says, that argument holds no weight in making the grant of rights irrevocable. Uh, so he he works works through several of the consideration aspects, and the Florida State case does get into this. Now, the next piece that he goes into is this avoiding injustice aspect. And he says, essentially, one of the tricky parts about this is when you're looking at a grant of rights, the question of who actually is injured if the grant of rights is broken. And the tricky part about that is that this is a contract between the conference and the school and not between the broadcaster or the the television company and the school. And the argument can be made, he says, that essentially the the conference, if, he says, any harm that the conference could find on the basis of this would be related to the broadcast contract signed before the grant of rights was signed, which would mean that the conference cannot argue that it signed a broadcast agreement based on the grant of rights if the grant of rights did not exist when it signed the contract. So essentially, this argument would say that there is actually no harm done to the conference. There's no there's no party privy to the actual grant of rights that is harmed by breaking the contract. So a team that breaks the contract has not actually harmed the conference with whom it signed that contract. Therefore, the contract is essentially irrelevant. And again, Florida State makes a very similar uh, case to that in their in their filing. Now, the second major heading that he puts into play here is characterizing the uh, the rights as liquidated damages. And this is a big deal because he basically says if the grant of rights can be portrayed or, or established to be a penalty, essentially to make the injured party whole after the breach of contract. Uh, and this is standard within all sorts of contracts where uh, you have something in place where if the if one party breaks this contract, then, you know, the injury to the uh, to the other party will be roughly this amount. It's calculated out. And therefore, this would be the penalty to uh, for breaking the contract to essentially make sure that any injury done to the other party is made whole by the per- by the party breaking the contract. And oftentimes that gets negotiated down so that, you know, the contract can be uh, can be broken with neither party necessarily going away happy, but neither party getting completely screwed in the matter either. Uh, the argument there is that if this is, if this can be framed as essentially liquidated damages, then the amount that is in play for the, uh, for the grant of rights is woefully out of step with any realistic sense of what the actual harm would be. And again, the question has to be who actually is harmed in this. So if the conference is going to get the same amount of money, if the school leaves, then the school is going to argue that there's actually no harm that needs to be addressed in this. Therefore, there should be no damages paid for breaking the contract uh, because there are no damages. If there's no damages, then there's no liquid damages penalty that should be assigned. And Florida State explicitly argues that in the in their filing. So uh, the, the basic idea uh, and and this is this is going to be a big part of the of the case here. The basic question is whether or not the grant of rights should be understood legally as a liquidated damages provision, essentially a penalty to uh, alleviate or to to deal with the potential harm done by uh, one party breaking the contract. Now that gets even more tricky, or even trickier. There's a word for that. Uh, there's a trickier business there because. It's then the question is liquidated damages are usually something that gets calculated in monetary form, right? So, you know, then it's a matter of, okay, let's, let's negotiate a number. Let's figure out what the actual damages are. Let's figure out what the actual harm is, and then we'll pay that amount. Now, the, the thing with something like a grant of rights is that it's not actually a dollar amount. It's a matter of rights. And so at that point, the ACC may argue, and I'm sure they will argue, that essentially the damages are not 
easily calculable in that fashion. And therefore FSU owes the ACC specific performance. That is the rights themselves treated in the same way that like real estate or, you know, irreplaceable unique property would be something that can't be valued in money in a natural way. You know, this, this is my particular property and it's not something that you can just cleanly put a dollar value on. And that that's why the grant of rights works the way that it does is because this is not about a monetary harm. It's about, it's about a, uh, special, uh, a special, a specific performance aspect. Now, We'll get into that just a little bit later, but uh, but th- that definitely comes into play as well. So to date, we don't really have a good sense of whether or not the courts will rule that this is essentially a liquid liquidated damages issue. But that is a major, major part that this con- or that this uh, fight is going to to be over, because as the article says, if an exit fee or the grant of rights is actually liquidated damages, schools will have a much easier time le- leaving the conference. If the grant of rights were considered liquidated damages, a court would likely find it unenforceable purely based on the magnitude of the loss to the school. While far from a certainty based on a current on current precedent, this finding would allow schools to easily move between conferences and destroy the overall importance of the grant of rights. And honestly, if if I'm looking at the at the Florida State filing, that is the biggest piece in all of this. If Florida State can get the court to determine that the grant of rights is actually a liquidated damages deal and that this is a penalty rather than something else, then all of a sudden that, that, that basically breaks the whole thing. That means that the grant of rights is not going to be enforceable as it's written. And essentially then it just becomes a matter of negotiation and maybe even just a complete invalidation of the whole concept of a grant of rights as it's written in the ACC's grant of rights. Now there are different ways of potentially strengthening that sort of thing for, uh, for future kinds of contracts. And they're suggested by the author at the end of this, uh, at the end of this piece. And a couple of those things, uh, the ACC, uh, version of the grant of rights already has, but a couple, it does not. Uh, but there's a lot going on in terms of how that actually works. The author also includes a little bit more discussion of the notion of specific performance and how that ties into all of this, it's saying that essentially it's going to be very difficult for any conference to argue that monetary payment of real damages is insufficient and that they must uh, retain rights to specific performance uh, in breach of con- for a a, a school breaking contract because the school, because the conference itself has to actually establish what the, what damages there actually are. And essentially as he, as he argues in its simplest form, the grant of rights is a contract regarding the distribution of broadcast television revenue. And the value of those rights is easily calculable, albeit with some complexities likely regarding the assistant of experts. So essentially he argues that spe- uh, specific performance doesn't actually work as a as something uh, distinct from, say, an exit fee in this context, precisely because you already have the value of rights negotiated out in a television conference or in a television contract with the conference. And interestingly, what FSU has built onto this and and. Now it's worth getting into what FSU's actual arguments are here in, in, in their filing. FSU has actually built on that saying, well, actually, the ACC's contract with, the, with, the, with ESPN treats all members the same. So I'm going to quote the, 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 uh, the uh, filing here, meaning that all ACC members were homogenous with no members designated as preferred or must keep schools over the others. Moving on to another section here, the ACC had 15 members when it signed the 2016 ESPN agreements, which would become important in the September 23rd or 2023 vote uh, to add three new teams. Further, uh, this is in uh, paragraph 69, uh, the uh, 2016 ESPN agreements treated all full ACC members the same, meaning each member, including new members, were completely interchangeable. So long as the ACC included at least 15 members, any member could withdraw without any financial consequence to the ACC, and each member's rem- each remaining member's share would not be affected. That's actually a really, really big deal here as well, because if we're talking about damages to the uh, to the ACC, if if 
if the ACC is going to claim that the grant of rights must be sustained because a breach of that contract is going to is is going to damage the ACC, Florida State is essentially putting on the table, show us what the damages are. Because contractually, the grant of rights depends on the consideration of the television contract. But the television contract actually explicitly treats the various teams of the conference as interchangeable such that a team can leave and another team can come in and the ACC is not damaged in this at all. Because the ACC and all ACC institutions that remain continue to get the same payment regardless of whether one of the signees of the grant of rights actually leaves or not. That's a huge deal in this. What Florida State's essentially arguing here is, okay, even if this is a valid contract, we sh- we can break this contract and leave without any penalty precisely because the ACC is not damaged in this. And the ACC should not be able to retain our rights regardless of what of anything else precisely because it doesn't hurt them not to that's 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 a big deal so essentially FSU argues that as long as the ACC stays above the threshold for membership of 15 teams FSU leaving contractually does not hurt the ACC so there's no real reason to sustain the grant of rights in that context. And even if the ACC in the long run did wind up getting getting hurt, did wind up sustaining injury as a result of all of this, the this the 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 next level of this and this again is is in the article that I uh that I I posted in the show notes, any harm that it, that the ACC would would acquire would be secondary. The result of ESPN's action, let's say ESPN at the end of all this decides not to renew the contract, that would be the result of ESPN's act- action, not FSU's. So it's secondary damage, meaning that Florida State is not actually liable for that harm, or certainly not the same way. So the in this case, not only the grant of rights, but the exit fee itself, the 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 upfront exit fee. FSU argues should be inapplicable because there are no damages to be covered by the by by the uh, by the exit fee. So again, liquidated damages as a as a general rule must be in keeping with reasonable assessment of actual damages, and otherwise you're looking at. And this is what uh, the the FSU uh, le- uh, uh, filing argues is that this is just an interorum, or you know, for the purpose of of uh, of invoking fear or or uh, bringing about fear of breach of contract rather than it actually being an equitable contract based on real value and real potential harm and all of that. So those are those are some of the, the things that upfront stood out to me in terms of the base level arguments here and what Florida State had had to had to uh, had to argue. And I think the fact that uh, FSU was able to highlight that in terms of consideration. So now turning to the the Florida State filing, Florida State does emphasize that in terms of consideration, the grant of rights actually gives the school no consideration because the uh, the, the school gained no consideration out of it because the television contract doesn't actually presume it, doesn't require it in the first place. And then the amended contract, it points out in 2016, allows for the uh, addition and subtraction of schools who may choose to leave the conference or join the conference. And it says, look, that is directly the opposite of what the grant of rights presumes in as, as the basis of its very existence. And if the contract on which the grant of rights itself is actually dependent is presuming something else, then that contract should be, uh, should be, or that that contradiction should essentially invalidate the the grant of rights. So that's a that's a that's a big piece here. Now beyond that, uh, I suppose I should actually cite or break down the actual six 
arguments that Florida State is making here. So first of all, they're arguing that that the grant of rights is unenforceable because it's an unreasonable restraint of trade. This is essentially an antitrust argument, uh, essentially saying that because the grant of rights is such a severe uh, withdrawal penalty that the, that they're calculating out to about five hundred worth about five hundred and seventy million dollars. Uh, FSU's complaint is that it would be a violation of Florida statutes because that kind of draconian penalty uh, serves as an unreasonable restraint of trade of a state institution. Uh, and here, they're, uh, what, one of the things that they did in order to demonstrate this is that this is basically just uh, they, they give a history of what they refer to as the runaway escalation of the withdrawal penalty package. And that's very key wording there, the withdrawal penalty package, because they are uh, they're they're very clearly trying to emphasize the tie of the grant of rights to the exit fee and presenting the grant of rights as an additive to the formal uh, dollar amount exit fee that would be owed to the ACC. Uh, as a package designed to be a penalty preventing any institution from exercising its right to leave the conference. So, and this, by the way, is tricky because what the ACC is going to argue in return is that the grant of rights is not, in fact, a penalty. They're going to argue that the grant of rights is simply a grant of rights. This isn't a penalty. This is just a matter of, in order for them to join in the conference and and to receive the benefits of the conference uh, television deal and all of that. And in order for the the conference to negotiate the television deal, then they needed to sign onto the grant of rights. And so we own their rights. And that's just that it's not a penalty. It's just a matter of who, who owns the rights and they sign theirs over. That's that Florida state is arguing that the grant of rights was expressly put together to be a barrier to programs leaving the 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 the, uh, the conference, and they argue that the grant of rights was only needed because the conference had already negotiated a very poor television deal. That's a big part of the argument. They're saying, look, the Big Ten doesn't need this kind of grant of rights. The SEC doesn't need these kinds of things to hold on to the rights of their of their uh, their membership because they know that those th- th- that they've negotiated good faith, good agreements with their broadcast partners, whereas the ACC, once it realized that they had fallen so far behind and they had done such a poor job of negotiating, basically negotiated or basically put this on the table and essentially deceived, they argue, uh, their members into signing these uh, these grants of rights and ultimately the first grant of rights and then the, the amended grant of rights in 2016 specifically to keep those programs in a bad deal. And so, you know, that essentially then argues that uh, the ACC has operated in bad faith, which we'll get to in a little bit, but essentially it's arguing that the ACC has operated in bad faith to restrict the ability of its membership to leave as they should in a market situation. And so if that's the case, then Ultimately, the grant of rights is put together ostensibly as a penalty, and if it's treated as a penalty, then Florida State essentially argues that this is a uh, an inappropriate restriction of trade. So that's that's number one. So, uh, like I said, that so much of this case deter- it turns on whether or not the grant of rights is uh, is determined to be a penalty or something else. And again, they're they made very strong arguments that based on the timeline and how this all was was worked out that it should be regarded as essentially an uh, a an effort to restrict the ability of membership to leave with a very severe penalty uh, and they compare that again with the SEC and the Big Ten you know the SEC's withdrawal penalty is a maximum of 45 million if a member withdraws without notice and 30 million if given appropriate two-year notice <laughs> and they're like ah, 500 and 70 million versus 30 million. Those are very, very different figures. And, you know, one, one, one is not like the other. The second thing is uh, they argue that this is an unenforceable penalty, even without the antitrust aspect. Uh, Essentially they, they argue that the grant of rights contradicts the uh, ACC constitution and bylaws. And it also uh, essentially contradicts the presumptions and some of the clear statements of the TV contract. 
So that's a problem. And then beyond that, the con the grant of rights is a contract that affords no benefits. And if it's lacking in consideration, it's invalid. So, and here's the, 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 the key quote here, the sole consideration recited in the ACC granted grant of rights were already existing media rights agreements. In other words, ACC members received no new consideration for the ACC grant of rights. And essentially the argument there is that a contract lacking in consideration this way is void. And then along with that, they argue that the 2012 ACC SBN uh, uh, assessment encompassed only tier one rights and treated all members the same. And therefore, and, and the same thing in the 2016, therefore, even if a team leaves and breaks the grant of rights, it does no damage to the conference. So long as the conference is able to backfill. And in this case, they argue that, that the conference already, uh, basically made efforts through the addition of the three programs that were added over the, uh, over the summer that the conference already is in position to have no damages. If Florida state leaves so long as FSU stays above the threshold for membership, FSU contractually does no damage to the sec if, or to the ACC, if they leave. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, they say, yes, they, they point out, and this is, this is one of the sort of smoking guns or one of the most amazing things about this is they demonstrate that ESPN has not extended the media deal past 2027 uh, and actually has a unilateral option to to extend the contract, but has not actually exercised that option. And so the argument there is that that lowers the present day value of any damages. So if you're going to say, okay, well, you're breaking the, you're breaking the grant of rights. And so you owe us your media rights for this amount of time or the val or potentially as FSU might argue in that case, the value of those media rights. Okay. Florida state says there's no, there's no value beyond 2027 because there is no contract beyond 2027, only the option to, extend the contract and ESPN has not yet done that. So essentially that lowers the present day value of any damages. They can argue essentially that the real date through which they would owe anything, even if, even if the grant of rights is held uh, airtight in the sense of they would actually owe their rights through the duration of the, of the contract, they're arguing that that end date would actually have to be 2027 and not 20, 2036 because the grant of rights is contingent on, it depends on the media rights agreement and the media rights agreement only goes through 2027. Now this gets tricky because on the one hand that could benefit Florida state, all things, all other things. If, if the grant of rights is not regarded to be a, a penalty and, and over overreaching penalty, all of that. And that, it's determined Florida state does have to stick with the, with the grant of rights and, you know, pay whatever is necessary to, to get out of it, you know, full fee, whatever Florida state could still say, this is only through 20, 2027 because there's no money after that. And the grant of rights depends on, on the money. Okay. Maybe the tricky part though, is that the ACC can return and I'm sure the ACC will, will uh, turn back and, and their rebuttal on this is going to be that, essentially the value of FSU's rights beyond 2027 are speculative that they, that there are that the grant of rights does hold those, those rights through 2036, but because there is no precisely because there's no contract through 2036 and it stops at 2027, the actual value of those rights is speculative, meaning they don't have a clear monetary value. Therefore, FSU owes specific performance. Therefore, FSU must actually assign their actual rights rather than some sort of monetary substitute for those rights because the value can't be calculated. That would be potentially the ACC's rebuttal there. Uh, and, you know, again, this is similar to how real estate or irreplaceable precious property is treated. So that would be the ACC's argument. And this is, if I'm being really cynical here, this would be one of the reasons that potentially the the ACC did not actually want the uh, ESPN to to uh, uh, elect to extend the contract when they were supposed to have and gave them that extension precisely because Florida State was already making noise about potentially leaving the conference 
And you know what? We'd rather have that be a speculative thing at this point so that it, you know, legally holds up a little bit more easily than if there's, you know, dollar figures there potentially. I'm not sure that that's actually the case, but that's one of those things that kind of sticks out to me. All right. The third thing that, that Florida state highlights here is breach of contract. So FSU essentially argues that the ACC first negotiated an uncompetitive contract with the SPN. And as this is not in the filing, but as, as we, as listeners to this show know, it's been discussed before, uh, the, a, a big part of the reason that the ACC negotiated such an uncompetitive contract is that John Swafford insisted on, and, and this is public record. He's, he stated this on the record that he wanted, uh, any agreement that he came to with the SPN or anybody else to include Raycom, the old, uh, uh, regional group of which his son was an employee. Uh, he was a director at the time and then eventually I believe a, uh, an executive. Uh, and so by tying Raycom into that, that ended up reducing the overall amount that Florida state got from ESPN. It also required a further extension. And then ultimately when they, when it came time for them to do the ACC network, it took about three years to reacquire all of the rights that they needed in order to have the third tier rights to, to do the network. All of that mess comes out of that initial mismanaged, negotiation back in 2010 so they can uh, they can deal with that though that kind of breach uh there's a um a four-year uh statute of limitations in the state of florida for that kind of thing so florida state will have to have to argue that only within the last four years or that at least within the last four years not necessarily only but within the last four years new manifestations of damages to Florida state manifested as a result of that. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why the filing is going to include or why the filing does include uh, reference to Florida state missing the college football playoff, despite being undefeated and why it addresses several things that happened specifically after 2020 <laughs> that, that makes sure that things fall into that statute of limitations. Now, the most, perhaps most damning detail and the thing that may be the smoking gun that gets Florida State out of this is that when the ACC network launched in 2019, uh, it triggered a requirement that ESPN exercise its unilateral nine-year option by 2021. And then quoting the, uh, the filing, but without any apparent investigation or consideration, the ACC commissioner gratuitously extended that option exercise deadline for four additional years or until February 2025 by signing a formal amendment of the 2016 ACC Tier 1 agreement drafted by ESPN. The ACC obtained nothing in return. And then this is the key piece. This was then this was done, quote, by the approval or uh, done without, quote, the approval of two thirds of the directors to amend it as required by ACC bylaw. That's a huge, huge deal. And that is a misstep by the ACC commissioner that may well blow this whole thing open. Because essentially what Florida State is arguing here is that in breach of, of its own bylaws, the ACC commissioner signed an extension and paperwork that could not be signed without approval of two-thirds of the membership, therefore Everything that is that the grant of rights is dependent on is invalidated from that time forward. That's a that's an enormous deal. Beyond that, they allege misrepresentation of the actual amended grant of rights ultimatum that takes the grant of rights through 2036. Because they say, in reliance of the assumed truth of the ACC's representations and faced with a $234 million sanction if it did not capitulate, Florida State's president voted to extend the ACC grant of rights uh, to 2036. This is basically Florida State saying, yeah, yeah, we signed it. But we signed it without sufficient knowledge of what we were signing, and it was misrepresented to us by the other party privy to the uh, to the or the other party with whom we were signing. And if one party deceives the other into signing a contract that is actually not good for the other party, that contract by law becomes invalid. So their argument is that we didn't know that this was 
that, that, that this was something other than what we were told. And the ACC misled. Therefore, even though our signature's on it, it's actually invalid. And in order to, to demonstrate this, they, they point out that the 2016 ESPN contract doesn't reference or incorporate the grant of rights and presumes the possibility of teams leaving and potentially being added in their place, which it says, look, if the, if the grant of rights is presumed in this legis- or in this contract, obviously, like nobody's going to be able to leave. So why would the contract presume this? It's actually a pretty decent case there. So they're alleging misrepresentation, which would invalidate the Florida State's signature on it. They're alleging uh, breach of contract by AC- by the ACC through the commissioner's unilateral action. Either one of those could essentially invalidate the, the, the grant of rights. And then beyond that, they're alleging breach of fiduciary uh, uh, duties. Uh, and basically saying that the ACC did not do its duty in making sure that Florida State made maximum amount of, mo- of money possible. So breach of fiduciary is, is a big deal. And then fundamental failure of contractual purpose. So they're basically pointing out that the uh, the ACC failed in its stated mission in terms of, of the uh, ACC uh, constitution, the purpose for the purposes for which the ACC uh, says it exists since the ACC has failed in those things, Florida state is not liable for leaving uh, the, 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 the conference that has failed in what the conference actually promises and says its mission actually is, or its purpose actually is. And then finally, the unconscionability and violation of public uh, policy of such draconian pu- uh, uh, punishments in number six. And that's sort of a pile on of the, uh, of the final ones. So that's, that's a much better case than I thought that the ACC would have. And, you know, we can come back and, and talk more specifically about some of these things, but that's a pretty darn good case. Uh, I think, again, the question of whether or not the, I, I think this case is going to deter, is going to turn on several things. Uh, the question of whether or not the grant of rights should be uh, regarded as a penalty, whether, you know, leave, leaving and then having to leave your rights behind should be regarded as a penalty. That's number one. Number two is whether or not the ACC actually did breach contract. Uh, number three, whether if the ACC did breach contract, whether that's sufficient to invalidate the, uh, the the grant of rights. Those are those are three pretty big deals. Uh, and you know, then finally the the question of if this is if there's some sort of damages involved, whether the the amount that we're talking about here is actually so unreasonable as to be essentially again invalidated by that very nature. So, like I said, it's a stronger case than I thought, and and largely because the ACC contract does not run past 2027, because the ACC commissioner unilaterally extended or apparently unilaterally extended the contract without the approval without the the uh, required approval of two thirds of the directors. And then, uh, uh, and then the question, some of the questions that I, I brought up at the beginning that the, that the article that I, uh, I've put in the show notes that the Wilhelm article, uh, brings up in terms of some of the potential just challenges to the nature of a grant of rights because of the, uh, the, the potential penalty aspect of it. Now for their part, the ACC's argument in the the case that they filed the day before uh in their effort to uh to establish venue their argument basically boils down to this FSU signed the agreements and has benefited and that's it <laughs> that's basically the ACC's argument Florida State's signed these these agreements so that's that they should be held accountable for signing what they signed so from here, ultimately, the ACC is going to have to play a lot of defense. And uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very, very interesting. Going in, I thought the ACC and, and I figured obviously this is going to be one of those irreparable breaches. Florida State's going to leave. But I thought I thought FSU would wind up you know, paying quite a bit to leave, you know, probably 50, 60 percent, if not more of the um, of the whatever the value calculated would be. So let's say 570 million. I figured maybe they'd end up paying 400 million or something like that in, in, in a settlement. Looking at this, 
I think they can do a lot better than that. Because I think if they push this, they it's not impossible they could win this case and why, why end up walking out with almost nothing. Now, major legal fees to get there, and the ACC is probably incentivized not to allow that to happen. And there's some folks around college football all over the place that probably wouldn't want to see grant of rights uh, uh, go down exactly like that. I mean, you start thinking about the dominoes that could fall in, in that case. But there's a lot going on here. And um, yeah, we'll we'll be revisiting this a little bit. I know it's a little bit difficult to go through some complicated, uh, some complex legal stuff on on air in this kind of in this kind of uh, format. But I've done the best I can as a uh, non esquire to uh, put the uh, the law hat on for a little bit and and, and talk through it. Um, address some. I'll address some questions. Some questions have come in uh, over the last day or so as well that uh, I'll address in the next episode. Uh, as we do a segment on this as well then. But uh, until then, we'll go ahead and wrap here. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts, post and repost episodes on social media, and tell a friend. And if you haven't left a review in a while, do it again. It really does help the visibility of the podcast. Before we go, I'd also like to thank my advertising partners once more. That's EPR Creations. Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage, serving Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. You can also stop by the Unconquered shop at unconqueredpodcast.com where you can buy stickers, pins, magnets, t-shirts, and other swag. And thanks Also, to all those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast, I am especially grateful to those above the dynasty level. That is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Neil Cook, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Dave Blair, Hector Cartagena, Jack Horton, Jimmy Van, Jonathan Kennedy, Keith Cheney, Lee Caswell, Tyler Kashishke, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. You all are far more generous than I deserve. I'm really grateful. Thanks to you all. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I made this.